0: This is the Talking DT Podcast, episode 18. Welcome to the Talking DT Podcast with me, Alison Hardy, a podcast for anybody interested in design and technology education, where I'll be sharing news, views, ideas, and opinions about DT. This week's episode is another one in our series about design and technology and knowledge. And it's Eddie Norman again as a guest editor or a guest contributor. And he's thinking about the arguments that have been presented in the past and still ongoing about why design should not be, or rather, as we see it, should be, a central part of a general education. This episode was recorded back in 2019. So some of the references that Eddie makes are from current design and technology practice magazines, which were earlier last year and not from 2020. So I hope you enjoy listening to this one and as usual if you've got any comments or feedback you can contact me via my website alisonhardy.work or you can find me on twitter at hardy underscore alison. Enjoy the episode.
1: When I retired I uploaded as many of my publications as I could to ResearchGate so that they might be available to future researchers. So far there have been over 3,000 reads And well over 700 of them are for the editorial I wrote in June 2013, entitled Design Epistemology and Curriculum Planning. So it's clearly an important topic for many researchers. The editorial had been written for Design and Technology Education, an international journal. And in response to a report prepared by an expert panel concerning the national curriculum in England and Wales, major concern was that the expert panel concluded that design and technology did not provide a powerful way of engaging with the future how could this be when that is in essence its reason for existing design concerns the modeling of future possibilities and the implementation of those possibilities considered worth pursuing and so in 2017 loughborough design press published an exploratory book with the same title Colleagues were invited to give their views in relation to the 2013 editorial and the expert panel's report. Stephanie Atkinson, Alison Hardy, Steve Curl, Graham Newman, Tristram Shepherd, and David Spendlove all made important contributions. In his contribution, David Spendlove called for a new vision for design and technology education based on design thinking, to which he gave the title Design and or Technology 2. He wrote as follows. There is therefore a unique, perhaps once in a decade, opportunity for reorientation of the values that were instrumental within the development of design and technology through adopting and capitalising on the intellectual and reflective aspects of design thinking and revisionism within a design and or technology too. Tony Ryan, the chief executive of the Design and Technology Association, in his recent editorial for d t practice, seemed to be suggesting that this task has largely been completed when he stated that what I will say is this new GCSE is the award that should have been in place years ago. It's academically demanding, challenges students to develop their subject knowledge while at the same time working on a set of skills and attributes that once learned and mastered will stay with them and serve them throughout their lives and accurately mirrors the design thinking that takes place in business industry and indeed in life. Well, I hope that is true, but it could be that it's more of an aspirational statement than a reflection of current realities. In October 2018, the Design and Technology Association, in conjunction with the All-Party Parliamentary Design and Innovation Group and the Design Business Association launched their report entitled Design Skills – A UK's Industrial Strategy. As reported in DT Practice, The following quotation hinted at some of the complications that accurately reflecting design thinking entails. Design is a way of looking at problems and finding solutions. The the government should incorporate it into all other subjects, ranging from programming to ethics. There's an acknowledgement here that design thinking is cross-curricular. Clearly, design and technology embodies aspects of design thinking, but so do other subjects. And there is some tricky teasing out to be done before there can be any certainty that design thinking is being accurately reflected by the educational provision across the curriculum. And all this rather assumes that an audit of design thinking is actually a current possibility. I retired in 2012 and in that year a book was published called Articulating Design Thinking, edited by Paul Rogers, that reported on a then recent conference. My reading was a little sketchy, as you might expect towards the end of my career, but I don't believe that the problem of articulating design thinking had been resolved at that point. My last task at Loughborough Design School was to co-supervise a PhD by Arthur Chan, which set out to establish the meaning of design thinking as expressed by academics and practitioners. There were many interesting outcomes, but that did not resolve the matter either. One of the targets of that PhD programme was the development of appropriate audit tools in relation to design thinking. But as I remember the situation, there was some way to go. Perhaps satisfactory audit tools have now been developed for design thinking, and they would certainly be needed for curriculum planning and review. The reasons for these appeals to design thinking as underpinning future curriculum development relating to design education are in a sense self-evident. But can anyone actually explain clearly what they mean? Design and technology is so often presented as a process-driven subject that draws on the knowledge base developed in other curriculum areas that has come to be seen as of secondary importance almost by definition. It's hard to complain about the conclusion that the expert panel reached that design and technology should not be part of the core curriculum if its major epistemological focus is repeatedly claimed to be applying what is learnt in other subjects. This all gets a little easier to grapple with if modelling is chosen as the point of departure for analysis, rather than referencing a or the design process or processes. The fundamental role of modelling and its relationships to designing and graphicacy need to be understood. The human capability to create and use mental models to act on the world and imagine future possibilities to design was at the heart of Ken Baines' seminal book, Design Models of Change, impact of design thinking on people's lives and the environment. Ensuring its publication was a key reason for the establishment of Loughborough Design Press. The seminars that led to the publication of Ken's book provided the backdrop to the work of the PhD research students who were members of the design education research group towards the end of my full-time academic career. Xenia Danos and Cheng Subei were both working on research related to graphicacy, although in very different areas. Xenia's research concerned the development of graphicacy within the school curriculum, and Sue's research concerned the visual communication of technology. Although they are directly related, modelling is a more general and substantial human capability than designing. Models can find expression in a variety of ways, for example through numeracy, literacy, graphicacy, and articulacy, and they exist in the human mind in forms that researchers are still in the process of understanding. Developing understanding of these matters is key to exploring how design thinking will map onto most, if not all, areas of the curriculum, and not exclusively onto design and technology. They also shed light on ways in which technology can be viewed and represented. Scientists may well view technology as applied science and seek to represent aspects of technology in particular mathematically based symbol systems, but it may not be viewed in the same way by designers. René Magritte's painting from the late 1920s, "Sussy, Népard and Peep, made the point that representation is not the real thing. But from the modelling perspective, it is what the representation enables that is significant. Visual representation facilitates the imagination and the interaction with visual languages, as Ken Spaines has described. Ken identified three visual languages. Firstly, visual or spatial qualities such as colour, texture and proportion. Secondly, physical places, things and communications, such as landscapes, clothes and graphic images. And thirdly, human values and meanings such as beautiful, fashionable and green. Visual representation also facilitates analysis with the creation of diagrams that can help understanding and establish order. Technical drawings can also help with quantitative analysis and it's apparent why visual representations are a key aspect of modelling in the context of designing. In fact, the power of visual representations has grown ever greater with the increasing sophistication of data representation that modern information technology has made possible. Such data representations are already blurring the boundaries between visual and mathematical representations of models. The computer, of course, holds the new data numerically, Traditionally, mathematical modelling might have represented a model as a series of equations that enable calculations and forecasts to be performed. I first came across complex mathematical models when I was introduced to the Club of Rome's 1970 report, The Limits to Growth, when studying engineering and economics at university. This report was founded on a world model incorporating such factors as resources, pollution, industrial output and population, and enabled predictions to be made. These are well known to have been alarming, but have not had the impacts on behaviours that the report's authors might have hoped for. Nevertheless, the key point here is that the model enabled the predictions to be made and considered. It's not always understood that a product design specification, or PDS, is a model for a design. However, it's useful to think about a PDS in this way. Within a PDS, it's possible to express both the aspirations for design and the constraints on it. Through language, they can be expressed in a way that allows considerable interpretation, or indeed very little, but a numerical value is likely to provide a much more precise requirement. Even if a mood board was included in the specification in order to capture aspects that are difficult to express in words or numbers, for example colours or styles, I would suggest that the visual representation provides tighter limits on the design than a verbal statement might. So a model of design in written language can capture user or market requirements without unduly limiting the designer, and this is almost certainly why the creation of a PDS and the use of freehand sketching are common early modelling activities when designing, because they allow the ambiguity that's necessary in order to explore a design task. If this discussion is extended to embrace the concept of technology, then from a design perspective the form in which technology is presented enables different kinds of exploration through modelling. Hence, in this context, it's important to consider the ways in which technological understanding can be expressed in order to facilitate modelling. I was honoured to be invited to give the John Eguston Memorial Lecture in 2006, and I included reference to the survey conducted for the Assessment of Performance Unit, or APU, in 1983, concerning the contributions made by UK school subjects to technological understanding. In this survey, technological understanding was analysed within three areas, knowledge, skills and values, and several categories were identified under each of these headings. I remember one delegate saying that she thought it was rubbish the first time she saw it, or something very similar, it was a long time ago. I'm not sure of the methodology that the APU adopted, and I must look back and find out, but crucially, the survey recognised that technological understanding was not confined within a particular subject boundary. The Knowledge, Skills and Values framework was used by the APU in their key document published in 1982 concerning understanding design and technology which reported the work of the APU technology subgroup chaired by George Hicks. It remains a very interesting read and its appendix begins to explore the knowledge and skills embodied in an aerial photography project. I joined Loughborough University in 1984 and this was part of my background reading as I was reflecting on the nature of technology for design or more fully technology for the purposes of those engaged in designing. This conceptualisation of technology for design was always part of my thinking and I eventually published a paper in 1998 considering whether it might provide a route towards more generalised positions concerning technology for design. The intention was not to consider technology in general, as trying to generalise too far seemed likely to defeat any hope of reaching a consensus, but it was a model that had gained some traction both in my own research and in framing theoretical discussions with my research students. The APU outcomes were important because they indicated a model of the contributions the different subjects were found to have made to understanding technology. Something similar is going to be needed to audit the contributions different subjects make to developing design thinking. And maybe there are some useful starting points here towards that cause as well.
0: You've been listening to the Talking DT podcast with me, Alison Hardy. You can connect with me on Twitter at Hardy underscore Alison. Show notes and transcripts for each podcast episode can be found on my website alisonhardy.work thanks for listening